Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Dr. Jack Vogel, CIO of the quantitative investing firm Alpha Architect. Jack is the co-author of the book Quantitative Momentum, and we talk to Jack about momentum-based investing strategies, trend following, and a number of other points related to these two styles of investing. Jack's knowledge around these types of strategies is robust, but as you'll see, he takes a very fair and balanced view on the benefits they can provide investors. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Alpha Architect's Jack Vogel. Jack, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on with us. I uh, I don't know. It was a couple months ago. I, I I think I saw you on another podcast, or maybe it was when before the shutdown. Maybe it was even a year ago. We came down and visited you guys, and I I commented to Wes. I said, you know, Jack's looking good. He's looking pretty fit. And I said, well, like, what is he what is he doing these days? And I think Wes was like, uh, he's just doing like push-ups. So well, so what I want to do is uh, maybe start this podcast off a little differently, and we could do uh, a quick push-up contest. What do you say? <laughs> I'm gonna get killed in that thing. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. My my camera only goes here, so I did a hundred. <laughs> yeah, that might be a little tough. Although, if trying to get these podcasts to, to go viral, that might be the only way to to do it. But anyways, um, yeah. So we're gonna talk about momentum with you today. You and your partner, Alpha Architect, wrote the book that I have here called Quantitative Momentum. I think this is a. It, just in terms of complimenting the book, I mean, you guys, it's a pretty short book, simple book. It's about momentum investing, and we'll get into some of that. But it's just really, I think for people that are interested in learning about momentum, this doesn't, you know, you guys did wrote it in a very understandable way. And so I appreciate that. I'm never good with like buying and finishing these books. But this is a book that I think if, if investors want to learn about momentum and don't want to be overwhelmed, I really highly recommend it. So you guys did a good job with that. Yeah, thanks. And uh, part of that too, just uh, one of the weirdest things about momentum is, uh, even though for people who may tilt towards value, right, only want to buy like cheap stocks, you know, we kind of highlight how momentum can be actually a good diversifying factor in your portfolio in that book. Um, but yeah, appreciate the kind words on it. Thank you. Yeah, so let's maybe to start at like a, a really high level, can you just kind of walk us through how you would define momentum maybe in some of the ways that it can be measured? And then the last part of the question would be what type of time periods you would want to basically measure momentum over. So what is momentum? How do you measure it? And what are the time periods that you would measure it over? Sure. So the simplest way to think of momentum, right, and academics will call this what's called cross-sectional momentum. And all that means is essentially, let's say we had a hundred or a thousand stocks, right? So cross-sectional momentum or momentum in general is what we'd say we have a thousand stocks. We would examine their past, let's say for simplicity, one year return. So very simply, you go on Yahoo Finance or now they actually have some uh, things in Excel you can tie directly into the data, right? So basically you, you go in there and you say, hey, my thousand largest firms, I'm going to just get their total return, including dividends. 
And momentum is very simply the process or momentum investing is buying the top 10% or top 20%. So in my thousand firm example, I would buy the top 100, right? If I wanted to look at it from a factor perspective, like an academic perspective, I would look at the return differential of high momentum relative to low momentum, right? And that's the momentum factor, momentum premium that academics examine. So essentially, all you're doing is looking at past price returns across a subset of stocks, so like U.S. stocks, and picking the winners uh, and essentially disregarding uh, the losing stocks in there. Now, the time period that you look at, right? So if you wanted to be a momentum investor, uh, one of the weird things about momentum is uh, there's generally called like short, intermediate, and long-term momentum, right? So short-term momentum and long-term momentum have what's known as a, the reversal effect, right? And the reversal effect is actually saying past months, like short-term means like one month, one week, but one month winners are next month's losers, right? Similar for long-term momentum, the past five-year winners tend to be the past five, the next five-year losers, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, when we talk about momentum, most people think of like continuation of returns. And one thing about uh, that is in general, you got to look what's called intermediate term momentum. So like nine months to 15 months, you would look at the return over that period. And then when you form your portfolios, something that's slightly different than, let's say, value investing is you need to rebalance this portfolio more often. Right. So academics look at it at a monthly rebalance frequency. Um, you know, we've done some perturbations. We have a post on our site where we basically just said, let's do it every one month or two months or three months, all the way down to a year. And in general, if I was saying if you were going to be running a momentum strategy, you want to rebalance it probably every three months. OK, so three months is kind of more frequently. Three months is a little bit more optimal. Um, one of the questions that we wanted to sort of talk to you about is I think a lot of times when investors hear momentum, they immediately think of growth stocks. And maybe over the last five years, that's been mostly true. It's like the growth companies, especially in the technology arena, have been the ones that have been exhibiting the strongest momentum. But, you know, we know that that's not sort of always the case with growth being on top. Sometimes value is and in those periods you know, value would be exhibiting the most momentum. So I'm just wondering in terms of um, like growth companies, even though they're growing their earnings, they don't always exhibit the best momentum. So the, the momentum factor is something that will bring you, it sort of always will bring you into the stronger areas of the market if you're running it like you're sort of suggesting, correct? Yeah, and, and that's one of the awesome parts about a momentum strategy, right? Is and, and we actually, I, I think there's a chapter in the book that says momentum investing is not growth investing, right? Like legitimately, because like it's like, hey, this sounds like growth investing, right? You're buying firms that are doing well on a price return basis, right? So we actually looked at it in the book and the overlap, because again, remember, growth is the opposite of value. And historically, there was a premium to buying value stocks over growth stocks. And historically, value stocks did better than the market and growth stocks did worse than the market. So when people hear momentum, they may sound, may think, hey, this sounds like growth investing. And I've been told never, ever, ever do growth investing, right? But really, when we looked at it in the book, the overlap between like high momentum and growth stocks was only around 20%, right? So historically, that's kind of your number. 
then secondarily, there is definitely a difference between momentum and growth. Because again, re remember, momentum, I'm, t I'm talking about rebalancing, let's say, every quarter, right? Academics test it every month. But if you're a growth investor going into the internet bubble, right, once that bubble starts going down, you're still stuck in these growth names. You're not getting out. Momentum is going to dynamically change to the firms that are now the winners, right? So when, you know, if, if internet stocks are doing poorly, right, they're going to transition into maybe some safer stocks that have done better over the past past year. So uh, it's definitely different than growth investing, I think, is the big idea that people should understand. Uh, momentum is definitely, it's related to, but it is not the same as growth investing. One of the challenging things we found with momentum is it's, it's very hard to explain to investors because investors like to look at a business. So they, they love something like value because I, they can say, all right, I'm paying X dollars for every dollar of earnings I get. But with momentum, we're basically just saying, let's buy these stocks because they are going up. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why momentum works, what the explanations behind the scenes are that explains why it works. Yeah. So, um, you know, in general, uh, whenever there's a, um, Factor premium academics have kind of fallen in two camps risk behavior, right? Um, and, and what does it mean by risk, right? So you go back to the 1993 Fama French, like they just said, hey, you know, value is riskier and size is riskier. And, and all they said was basically, hey, what, what did that mean? That basically meant that there was like a strong uh, covariance amongst these value firms and amongst these small firms. And definitionally, if you see that there's this large covariance amongst these firms, they must have some undiversifiable risk factor that they're loading on, right? Now, it's really hard to identify what that is. Fast forward to momentum, and we're talking about momentum specifically, right? But I only bring that up because momentum has a very similar covariance structure, right? High momentum firms, low momentum firms have a similar covariance structure as value and growth, right? So in theory, you can make the exact same argument for momentum as you could with value. Now, what is the momentum or what is the risk factor that momentum loads on? There's some academic papers using like arbitrage pricing theory to try to figure that out. Um, in general, it generally loads on more growthy factors like increase in employment, increase in ex ex uh, inflation, right? The alternative side besides risk, which is just, hey, momentum's riskier, right, is behavior. And the behavioral side sounds awesome, right? Because behavior people, I mean, this, this story sounds better than risk because I just say it's an undiverse, it's undiversifiable risk factor that I don't know exactly what it is. So what's the behavioral error for momentum? The behavioral error is people tend to underreact to good information, right? And sorry, not just good, but also bad information. So what that means is, let's just say a firm comes out with a uh, earnings report and they beat expectations, right? So maybe the stock's at 100 and it should jump to 120. But what happens is it only drop, jumps to 110, right? So the market doesn't like fully price us in. And then that, that 110 to 120 continues. Similarly on the low momentum uh, front, right? And, and again, momentum from an economic perspective is looked at as long short. So when you get bad news about a firm, maybe it was at 100 and it should go to 80, but it only dropped to 90. So you get this like continuation of both good and bad news on uh, so good for high momentum bad for low momentum okay. 
In terms of measuring momentum, I want to ask you about the whole argument between using one measure versus using a composite of measures. And I, and I know you guys are using 12 minus 1 momentum as, as your primary measure, but other people have argued, you know, if, if you bring in a composite of metrics, then when one of them's not working, the other ones might not, the other ones might work, and you might get a smoother return over time. And I just want to know, think, uh, how do you look at that? How do you look at the decision between using a composite versus using an individual metric to measure momentum? Uh, yeah, I mean, here's what I'd say. The, the one thing about composites versus individual is a lot of times they're highly related, right? So, for example, um, on momentum, it's most likely the case that your 12-month momentum is highly related to your 12-1 momentum. Basically, and 12-1 meaning you exclude the last one. And we do this because, as I mentioned, we know the one-month return is uh, has a reversal effect, right? But so your 12-month return is going to be highly related to your 12 minus 1, which is going to be highly related to your 11, which is going to be highly related to your 13-month momentum, right? So in general, you're getting similar signal. Um, and again, there can be some nuances in there and maybe some differences. So uh, I, I would say I'm not like anti-using composites. I'm just saying sometimes people don't or, – or, the argument sometimes maybe gets stretched a little that it adds a ton of value because they're highly related. So like what have we done? Uh, one thing we've made like a, an update in our index to kind of say, hey, yeah, I mean, in general, composites might have some value. You know, we're going to be looking for 12-1, the top firms on 12 12-month uh, 12 momentum excluding last month. But at the same time, at the outset, we're going to boot out any firms that are really bad on nine-month momentum or six-month momentum just to make sure we're not buying a firm that had some like weird massive price jump um you know in that like three four month period differential so uh, i'm not anti using composites i just think sometimes uh, uh there's a lot more overlap than people might uh discuss Okay, that's interesting too, because that's very similar to sort of what you would do with a negative quality screen on value, it sounds like, but you're, you're sort of applying it to momentum. Yeah, and again, on, on value, and I know we're, we're generally talking about momentum, but again, on value, right, a lot of the, the studies that look at composites start with the baseline of book to market. And again, book to market is, you know, an asset over a price, right? But it, the one thing that's interesting is if you take away book to market and you look at just all the earnings multiple metrics, well, these are all related, right? Like if you sort firms, like just go and do it. Sort firms on like, we use enterprise multiples. When you sort and pick the top 50 firms on enterprise multiples, you're basically in the 99th percentile on free cash flow to enterprise value. You're on the 99th percentile on earnings to price. You're in the 99th percentile on sales to price. So they're all related. The one thing is a lot of these studies start with the baseline on like book to market and book to market so unrelated to these other earnings based multiples that yeah, of course you're going to add some value. And we already know ex ante book to market has been one of the worst value performers over the past couple of years, right? So yes, it's going to look even better. Jack, you, you kind of hit on this um, with the example of that company that let's say like popped up crazy over the last three months or six months or whatever, but I wanted to get at the findings of the importance of consistency uh, of momentum in your research and how more consistent mo momentum is generally better. Yeah, so, um, you know, con consistent momentum uh, is just effectively, and we embed this in our like index and in our strategy, effectively, 
Um, <clears throat> the one paper that we use in our index is it's called uh, Frog in the Pan um, uh, Consistent Momentum. And, and basically, what they're looking at there is they, they wanted to see is the momentum premium driven by um, firms that have like kind of more consistent momentum or ones that have like jumping momentum. So the example and why it's called frog in the pan is, you know, if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's going to just jump right out, right? Because it's going to identify that this is boiling water, I'm going to jump out. If you throw a frog into cold water and slowly turn up the heat, it's not going to realize and eventually, unfortunately, it's going to die, right? So in this study, in that paper, what they did is they looked at basically the different types of momentum. So, you know, I use, always use the same example. You know, you have boring big box, right? And boring big box is a high momentum firm because it basically was up 50 basis points for 200 days. So it's up 100% over the past, you know, 10 months. Alternatively, right, we have exciting biotech. And in exciting biotech, right, it's just kind of jumping around. And then five months ago, it got FDA approval and it jumped up 100%, and it's been literally flatlined since then, right? So in that paper, and, you know, we've studied this as well, uh, a couple, you know, replicated it, changed the universe, and it seemed to work as well. Essentially, you want to be buying the, the high momentum names that have more consistent momentum. Right, and that spread between high and low momentum is generally driven by the more consistent, both good and bad momentum. Right, but on the on the uh, high momentum side, we want to look for firms that basically have high momentum and they also have this consistency. Well, you had mentioned that momentum tends to, you know, work better when it's more frequently rebalanced. But obviously, as professional investors and also retail investors that are trying to deploy this, you got to be cognizant of the transaction costs, both direct and indirect, associated with running a m momentum strategy. So just generally, I mean, what are your sort of thoughts and insights? I think there was a study from DFA that kind of said after transaction, you know, you take transaction costs into consideration, momentum doesn't work. I think AQR has come out and said, no, that's not true. It does work. So what, what's your general take on that? So my general take is, of course, transaction costs matter, right? <laughs> Right. Just like, you know, if you're going to be a real estate investor and you're going to your whole idea is to flip a house every like 10 days and you have to pay 6% commission, you're probably not going to make any money unless your returns are much higher. Right. Um, so, yeah, of course, transaction costs matter. The question, though, is what's the scale? What's the amount of money you can actually put into these strategies? Right. And so uh, specifically, uh, and I wrote, it's literally a 10,000 word article. It's called Factor, Factor Investing and Trading Costs, right? And actually a couple thousand words got thrown into the appendix. Um, but, but I looked at numerous studies on this topic, right? And the DFA study, or it's kind of the Novi, one of the Novi Marx papers, right? It looks at like trading costs. And there's two ways in which you can say basically what are the trading costs and how would they affect the premium? So the first way, and this is what DFA did, is you have to build what's called like a microstructure data, you basically or microstructure model for transaction costs. So in that paper, what was tested was essentially saying, hey, we're going to build out a model for what we believe the tra transaction cost should be to buy and sell these securities, right? Or to just buy, because I think in general that paper looked at both sides, long, short, and just long only. And one thing that's interesting on these microstructure models is um, you know they're just that they're academic models. So the AQR, 
So, and then we have to take everything with a grain of salt, right? So that's, you know, DFA, you know, Novi Marks uh, is academic, also a firm that literally says momentum doesn't exist, okay? We then go to iShares and AQR. They have papers on this, right? So iShares has a paper that says, you know, the momentum amount that you can invest is, you know, 10x or 8x, I forget the exact number, what DFA says. Then we go to the AQR paper, and I think this is probably the one paper I would recommend anyone read, right? And they say, hey, and I think the, the best thing they did in that paper was they looked and they said, let's just use your model. We're going to use the academic model that you guys built that told us momentum doesn't exist. And we're going to apply this to the S&P 500. Okay. And when you do that, their model, which says momentum doesn't exist, says it costs about 650, I think it's like 62 or 63 basis points to run the S&P 500. iShares and Vanguard says it costs 10 basis points, right? So we're talking our models off five to six X, the actual cost. And actually embedded in that paper, another thing that's interesting is that model says to run the US total stock market, which by the way, Vanguard has a fund that just buys every stock, would literally take away the entire equity risk premium, right? So I think there's truth to both sides. Probably these models that say the momentum doesn't exist, could never work, maybe misspecified, right? But if you said, Jack, I have a, here's a trillion dollars, go run a monthly rebalanced 20 stock momentum strategy, I'd tell you, yeah, we probably can't do that, right? So I think there's truth on both sides. Um, and I think there's a lot more capacity to momentum than maybe some of the papers in academic, academia would uh would say. say I'll admit I didn't read the uh, 10,000 word article, but <laughs> we'll put a link to it in the uh, in the show notes. Go ahead, Jack. Yeah, well, a, a big one, one of the things that just got thrown in the bottom is there's also like, you know, uh, there's a second a second way in which you could test uh, <clears throat> transaction costs. There's a whole nother literature, basically another stream of literature looking at inferred transaction costs. Right, and and that's uh, and, and they would say momentum doesn't exist as well. So, but uh, yeah, I had fun with that article. One of the things that makes a lot of sense to investors is is the whole idea of fundamental momentum, or the whole idea of saying, all right, I, I don't want to just look at is this stock going up, but I also want to look at why is it going up? Are the fundamentals getting better? And there's been sort of some mixed results in the academic literature about this. I know Novi Marx, I think, basically said that price momentum and fundamental momentum are very similar. Um, then we have this paper on our site, Twin Momentum, which looked at it and said, you know, there is an additional premium by adding fundamental momentum to price momentum. I just wanted to ask, what do you think about fundamental momentum? Do you think it adds value to a momentum strategy? Um, so, yeah, the one thing that's nice, and we have this, we have a description, outline, replication, and results in the appendix chapter of quantitative momentum. So, um, but uh, effectively, fundamental momentum is nice because, and what Novi Mark says is basically says, hey, fundamental momentum is what really drives price momentum, right? And again, you have to go into the nuanced detail to try to figure out like exactly what was tested, what was done, right? Um, one thing that's interesting is, uh, in general, I would agree the two are related, right? And that's actually nice because you kind of know, hey, price momentum is somewhat related to fundamental event, right? Now, there's some down pros, cons to using fundamental momentum relative to price momentum. Let me give you a pro for fundamental momentum, right? If you said, hey, Jack, I need you to run a long, short momentum strategy, 
I would actually probably use fundamental momentum, not price momentum. Why? Because what happens is, uh, and this is true when you look at the data, if you're basing it purely on fundamentals, right? Essentially, you know, when the economy goes up and down, right? You know, in general, earnings are going to go up and down somewhat together, just across all firms. So fundamental momentum in general, from a long short perspective, has a lot less variation or standard deviation of return. So a nice thing about that is if you're running a pure long short, you know, you don't want to have a 25 vol strategy or a 25 vol strategy can just cause a lot more issues. Like you can get blown out positions. Um, but here's a con of fundamental momentum. The minute you say, hey, I want to be a factor investor and I know value and momentum are negatively correlated. Well, price momentum and value are negatively correlated. Fundamental momentum and value are not negatively correlated. So now you've lost some portfolio diversification benefits that you, you possibly get by having price momentum. So I guess big picture, I'm not anti-fundamental momentum. We like price momentum because I think, you know, there are some portfolio diversification benefits. A lot of people... You know, if you're not just pure passive, you probably have a size or a value tilt in your portfolio, right? And so if you have a value tilt, using price momentum will diversify your portfolio better. So all else equal, I'd probably prefer to use price momentum. We had Adam Butler on our podcast and we were talking about a model he created that looked at sort of the money flowing into and out of factors. And one of the things he was negative about with value is, you know, value is such an intuitive factor that there's a ton of money chasing value at any given time because it just makes sense to people. I'm wondering if you think maybe that's a positive for momentum. Maybe that's a reason momentum might persist better than value because effectively it's less intuitive to people. So it's being less widely used. Yeah, I would say that's possible. Again, the premium is only going to go away if the money goes in and never leaves, right? Because, again, that's that's the hard part. Um, like saying, hey, a premium has gone because money came in. Well, when, you know, the biggest premium out there is the equity risk premium, right? Someone tell me, give me a model that tells me when that goes away. How much money has to flow into equities? No one can do that, Right. So again, it's just, it's hard to perfectly quantify. Like we can't say how much money has to flow into a factor for it to dissipate um, is one thing that I would say. But I would say, and I agree with Adam, that in general, the more frictions or the less people invest in a strategy, right, uh, all else equal, the better you would think that premium would do in the future, right? So I always like to give an example of like international side, right? The meaning you do factor investing on the international side, so many firms embed all these frictions and random rules that basically create it where it may not be actually what you're looking at, right? So for example, let's say you want to do like international momentum and you're like, oh man, right now we're like really overweight. I'm just making this up, you know, Germany, or we're really overweight France or UK or Japan, right? Now, if you, if you have that and you just let the firm, like the, let the portfolio go where it goes, Right, that's the test that academics have looked at. But if you're you're running this portfolio and you're like, well, you know, in the MSCI EFI index, Japan has a weight of 25%, so I can only go to 28%. Well, now you've embedded like a random rule that's going to restrict funds from flowing into that strategy. So I would say um, I agree with Adam that in general, you know, if there's less money going after something, you'd expect the premium to do better in the future. 
I would just say it's really hard though to actually quantify how much money needs to go into a specific premium or factor for it to like go away. So okay, that makes sense. Before we uh, we're gonna pivot to trend following, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you one more question about momentum. Um, it, it seems like, and you've talked about this a, l a little bit earlier, value and momentum make a perfect pairing for each other in a lot of ways. They they tend to work at different times. Their their premiums seem to be negatively correlated with each other. But the, the nuts and bolts of doing that can be a little bit challenging. You know, you, you end up with two different ways people do it. You know, you end up one, with one which I call like the sleeve method where you take your 10 value stocks, you take your 10 momentum stocks, you combine them together where they're kind of operating in silos, but then they're combined into a portfolio. And then you have the other method where you're looking for stocks that have a little bit of value and they have a little bit of momentum and you sort of look for stocks that have both the characteristics simultaneously. And I'm wondering what you think about that and if you, if you have one method you prefer over the other. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, what I'd say is, you know, well, there's ways you can test this, and there's literally multiple papers saying silos better, multiple papers saying combines better, right? So, and I, th I think honestly, if you had to say, hey, let's just go forward 100 years, I think they're probably going to end up around the same spot, right? So I think it kind of comes down to, uh, you know, how do you want to explain to people as well as like investor understanding? So obviously, if you do silo, <laughs> right? You got value, you got momentum, right? Clearly in this instance, right? It's very easy for someone to understand. Oh man, momentum did really well, value did poorly, right? The minute you do combination, you kind of get this, this question of, well, hey, what drove my returns, right? So I'm always going to be a fan of silo because I think it's just easier for investors to understand as well as investors can then pick. Because some people may be like, Hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically, uh, <clears throat> I really don't like momentum. Well, then obviously you can do your silo value, right? Now, the other thing is when you build a combined portfolio, so let's say we're not doing silo, right? Which again, I'm, I would say I'm more of a fan of silo, right? Um, but let's say you're doing it combined. One thing that I think people need to take into account is value is very nice in that it can be rebalanced annually. So let's say you're not doing this in an e in like a, a tax structure, like an IRA, or you're investing uh, in, in something else that can help you with taxes, right? Effectively, value, you can rebalance once a year. Kind of cool, right? Um, so if you wanted to combine momentum with value, maybe you just use momentum as like a negative screen, like buy value stocks that don't have poor price momentum, right? Now, if you, want, if you wanted to do it combined and you want to have momentum, you kind of have to rebalance every couple of months. So, you know, that's one thing I think sometimes people forget is you can't just combine value momentum and then rebalance annually, right? Because momentum, you need to rebalance more frequently. So, so far, we've basically been talking about like stock specific or cross-sectional momentum, but let's pivot to uh, trend following because I think you guys actually utilize some trend following techniques and strategies that you, that you run at Alpha Architect. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about how you define trend following, what it is, and maybe the different ways to approach a trend following um, strategy. Sure. Yeah. So again, sometimes trend following is called momentum as well, right? But but let's just clarify. So momentum, what we talked about before is we have 100 stocks. We're picking the top 50 because they did well, right? Trend following is I'm going to look at one asset, right? So I'm going to look at S&P 500. Is S&P 500 trending up or is it trending down, right? 
and I think that's the simplest way to bifurcate is basically trend following is, is my single asset or the one, uh, is the single asset that I'm looking at, is it trending up or is it trending down, right? And there's different ways in which you can rule it. You know, so the one way, the first way is called moving average rules, right? And a moving average rule is you look at the last price and you compare that to the average of the prices over the past 12 months, right? If you're doing monthly data or 200 days or 250 days, right? So that's a moving average rule. Another way you could look at it is what's called time series momentum, which is you just look at the past total return over the past year or 10 months or nine months, compare that to the return to cash, or you can compare it to the return to just zero, right? Whatever you want to set as your risk. If your return of your asset is above the return to cash, you're invested. If it's below the return to cash, you get out, you go to cash. So trend following is a simple approach to effectively be in or out of an asset class from time to time, depending on the trend in the prices. I think coming off the financial crisis back in 08 and 09, like trend following strategies kind of, you know, got more popular because investors were sort of looking, you know, at that experience and looking for ways to protect their portfolio from that happening again. But obviously since then, I think it's been a probably a tough decade for a lot of trend following strategies and systems. But, you know, even with that being said, what type of investor do you think it makes sense to have a trend following strategy for their investment or part of their investment portfolio? Yeah, so, and I I mean, I wrote an article at the beginning of 2020, which I could just update, but I called it Trend Following a Decade of Underperformance, right? That was the title of the article because you're right, right? Coming out of the financial crisis, everybody loved trend following. Why'd you love trend following? Because, hey, the prior decade, right, there were two 50% drawdowns in equities, right? Two 50% drawdowns in equities, if you were a buy and hold investor from beginning of 2000 to the end of 09, you literally lost money, right? If you did trend following, you made an, you made 5%. So there was like this 6% spread over this decade. So everybody, obviously, they were like, oh, well, well, this is simple. I'm just gonna do trend following, right? What you don't understand is trend following definitionally has to lose a lot of times. And we've looked at this across tons of asset classes across different times. In general, eight to nine out of 10 times, you're gonna lose. Why are you going to lose? Because the market's going to go down. Your trend rule is going to say, get out, right? And effectively, the market's going to rebound, right? So trend following is really going to help you in the instances where you get out and the market just keeps going down, right? So over the past decade, um, essentially, there really was only one, you know, 50 plus percent drawdown, which was commodities, and trend following helped you there, right? Like if you were buying whole trend, buying whole investor in commodities, relative to a trend following investor in commodities, you would have done a lot better in trend following. All the other asset classes that had these quick rebounds, you would have unfortunately underperformed. So trend following, you were asking, uh, uh, you know, basically, well, I'm trying to think, you were asking, you know, what can you expect from trend following? And it's unfortunately, you're gonna, you're gonna have a lot of whipsaws, right? And then what type of investor should be in that? I would say it's kind of good for investors who would maybe never invest in stocks. They just want to know, hey, if things go bad, I'm getting out, right? Like systematic process-driven method to get out and also more importantly, get back in, 
right? I think a lot of times people forget that trend following, you know, you systematically will get right back into the asset class once the trend is back on. So, um, yeah, it, it's not for everyone is what I would say. Trend following is definitely, of all of the strategies and factors, trend following has the largest tracking error and you requires the toughest stomach to stick with. Yeah, and a lot of investors think the opposite of that. They think, oh, it doesn't require a tough stomach because I'm out of these declines, but it's also very hard. You know, if you're seeing the S&P raging up and you're, you're in cash or you're hedged, you know, it's very hard to sit there and watch that going on. That, in a lot of ways, might be harder than losing money. Yeah, it is. And again, but it's, you know, unfortunately, you know, our brains just, it, it all depends on your context, right? So if you said, hey, I was a, I was a U.S. stock investor with trend following or I was in cash, you would have killed cash over the past decade being a trend follow stock investor. You would have killed bonds being a trend follow stock investor. But if you and your brain compare it directly to the S&P 500, yeah, you would have underperformed, right? So it just it depends on what you're comparing it to. Uh, I have another article. It's like, what's the correct benchmark for trend following, right? And in general, you could say it's about, you know, 75% stocks, 25% cash, right? Because in general, that's really what you're doing, right? Um, you know, 75% of the time you're invested, 25% of the time you're in cash. So, um, but yeah, it, it definitely, definitely requires a tough stomach if you're going to compare it directly to the index you're looking at. I want to ask you about some of the ways to implement trend following. You know, it seems like you have two different ways people do it. You have one, which is sort of the switch method, which is, you know, you see a lot of products that might say, all right, at the end of the month, if I'm below the 200 day moving average, I'm selling. If I'm above, I'm buying. And then you have something more along the lines of what Corey Hostein does, which is you're basically looking at it every single day. You're looking at a lot of metrics and you sort of have something that slides up and down versus going all in, in all in or all out. And I was just wondering what you think the pros and cons are of those two different ways of doing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just simply that there's pros cons to both approaches, right? Um, so, you know, obviously, uh, if you have a lot more signals, which again, are going to be related, right? Your 250 day moving average is highly related to your 220 day moving average, which is highly related to 275, but they're not all perfect, right? Um, so obviously the more signals you have, the less I would say, uh, issues you can have with like a signal, you get a bad signal, right? Um, so you're diversifying your signals. And obviously it's going to cause more trading, right? More complexity on that side. Now, uh, so that's, you know, I would say the pro of more signals is just that you get more signals, more diversification. And one of the cons is there can be like more trading, more stuff that's embedded. Um, and, and the other con is, you know, people may get confused as to like, wait, what signal's on, what signal's off, why am I in, why am I out? Um, that being said, I don't disagree with Corey uh, and the Resolve guys because, you know, even in our strategies, right, so in when we have trend following, we use two signals, right? We use moving average and time series momentum. You know, maybe we could use four signals, right? But on each asset class, we use two signals. Right. So there is some benefits of diversifying the signal. You kind of are splitting, you know, the signal that you're using, um, you know, but using two as opposed to a couple hundred, maybe it's a little bit easier for people to understand. So there's just pros and cons to both approaches is what I would say. Um, the last question that we wanted to ask was about and going back to Corey. We had Corey on the podcast after he published um, 
his paper, Liquidity Cascades. And I'm wondering sort of what, you, which is, you know, sort of like this narrative that, you know, there's these cascades in the market and maybe the market's speeding up in some ways to the sort of when it goes down or when it even comes back up. So because of all these different participants and dynamics that are happening in the market. But I'm wondering, so you have, you know, that sort of happening, I guess, in theory of these liquidity cascades happening more. But then also when you look at maybe like the patterns of recessions and the time and the number of recessions that our economy is sort of happening, they tend to be happening less potentially. So I'm wondering, what do you think both in terms of liquidity cascades and that concept and in terms of recessions maybe happening less, how do you think sort of trend following, uh, I guess, would it, how would a trend following be affected by those two concepts? Yeah. So in general, uh, you know, if it's super fast, like, I mean, well, here, this is a, this is a true, true fact. You know, we will, I always would tell anyone who asks us, Hey, how's trend following work in a couple environments? How does it work in a super quick, like 1987 or like five day span? Trend following is not going to work in that instance. Right. Um, it's It's going to work over like longer periods of time. That's generally going to be where trend following is going to show, uh, some of its, you know, benefits, right? Um, so in, in general, I would kind of agree with Corey that if things just become super fast, trend following is probably going to underperform relative to how it did in the past. Now, the real question though is what happens in the future for asset prices, right? Um, like, do we know with certainty that things are going to happen really fast and they're going to rebound very fast? We don't necessarily know that, right? Um, so I, I would say, I think it's just really hard to predict that even if things, and obviously it makes sense, you know, we live in 21st century where, you know, there's machines, machine learning algorithms, reading all the data, every nanosecond it comes out, probably trading off that data. So in general, it makes sense that information is coming out and that things are more efficient and quicker. But that doesn't mean that if you happen to have like a real big downturn, right, that uh, effectively, um, you know, trend following wouldn't work in the future. But, but, the, but as Corey highlights, the price and the path does matter. Do you think there's any argument for maybe incorporating some trend signals that are a little bit faster in that type of world, that's something we've been struggling with internally is thinking about, you know, or if you're, if you're using the 200 day now, should you mix in some moving averages that are maybe a little bit faster given that things are moving faster? Or do you think that it makes sense just to stick with more of a long-term type approach? Yeah, I mean, well, there's just pros, cons to all these approaches, right? Yeah, you can add in some short-term ones, but you know on the short-term ones, you're gonna have a lot of like negative signals. You're gonna have a lot of times where you're like out, back in, out, back in, out, back in, because that's just what happens in the short term. Right. So you can add that and it's going to help you for, you know, what happened probably like in March of last year, February, March. Right. But, you know, you forget that that would have hurt you, you know, back in 2015 or, you know, like we could just go through the past decade. Right. And you'd be like, OK, U.S. gets downgraded from AAA. You would have got hurt on the short term. Right. Like you would have got hurt, you know, oil. Back in 2016, we thought it was crazy when oil was $12 a barrel, right? You would have been out right back in. So, yeah, it can help. It's not perfect. Um, 
there's just pros and cons of different approaches. And again, as I mentioned, the biggest caveat on trend following is it requires the hardest stomach of all of the factors, right? Because long only value investors are just buying cheap stocks. And yes, values underperform, but if you were in value over the past you know, decade, you still did way better than being in cash. And you're still close to the market, right? Momentum, you're buying winners. Yes, there's gonna be periods to underperform, outperform, but you're gonna be near the index. Trend following, you can have massive deviations, right? So again, trend following of all the factors uh, just, just has the widest and largest tracking error. So you, know, you have to have a tough stomach to, to use that strategy. It's great, Jack, good stuff. I, you know, I, I really appreciate sort of the balanced sort of approach that you've taken with all these responses, which, you know, like you're, you've said multiple times, there's pros and cons to all this stuff. So no strategy is gonna win all the time, no strategy is gonna work all the time. You kinda, and I think what you guys really try to promote at Alpha Architect is, you know, education and transparency. And I think the more that we can do that as firms and the more that we can have conversations like this, hopefully the better off um, investors are gonna be. So uh, just in closing, where can people go to find out more about you, the research you guys are putting out, the firm, the various strategies you run and so forth? Yeah, so just uh, our website, alphaarchitect.com. Um, for those interested, you know, in Momentum, uh, on our website, we have, besides our blog, where we kind of outline, uh, you know, just newer research papers that come out, as well as summarization of, you know, different ideas, we have our blog. We also have a tool set on our website. Uh, on the tool set, we have a factor library that we built, effectively looking at all these different factor returns. Um, and for those interested in, you know, possibly looking to build stock portfolios. We have a very simple screener for stocks, um, whereby you could say, hey, I wanna, what are the top 50 momentum names right now? And you could go on our website, sign up for the tools for free, and you can view the top 50 momentum names right on our website. Good stuff. All right, Jack, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, thank you very much for having me. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. 